0: Welcome to The Rob Burgess Show. I am, of course, your host, Rob Burgess. On this, our ninth episode, our guest is Benjamin Fowler. Fowler has been playing the drums since he was 12 and teaching since the age of 17. He graduated from the Indiana University Jacobs School of Music in 2008 with a bachelor's degree in jazz studies and percussion. At school, he studied with Los Angeles studio stalwart Steve Houghton, He also had lessons with veteran New Orleans drummer John Vitikovic and studied regularly with Indianapolis jazz and gospel great Charleston Dino Sanders. Over the years, Fowler has played the drums in such bands as Community Currency, The Delicious of Joyful Noise Records, Kentucky Nightmare of Standard Recording, DM Stith of Asthmatic Kitty, and cardboard. He is currently busy with the Jefferson Street Parade Band and Chainsaw Mondays. Along with the drum set, Fowler also teaches finger-picking, rock, and jazz guitar and piano at the Jefferson Street Music Studio. Fowler coordinates several teachers. They're all currently active in Bloomington's musical community and they teach a variety of instruments including trumpet, saxophone, keyboard, banjo, mandolin, vocals, and more. Whatever you'd like to learn, the experts at JSMS can help. Ben is the founder of the Limestone Beaters. The group began in June 2012 as Bloomington's only independent student drum line. In the summer of 2014, Aaron Comforti joined as co-director, and the group blossomed into a full-on student brass band. They just recorded their first full length album at the end of April. The Jefferson Street Parade Band can be found on Facebook at Jefferson ST Parade Band, all one word. The official website for Chainsaw Mondays is ChainsawMondays.com, and their Facebook page can be found at Chainsaw Mondays, all one word. The Limestone Beaters can be found on Facebook at Limestone Beaters, all one word. The Jefferson Street Music Studio can be found by searching the name on Facebook. The studio can be reached by phone at 812-340-9247 or 812-269-6171. The street address is 2051 West Vernal Pike, Bloomington, Indiana 47404. I've compiled a playlist of songs from the Limestone Beaters, the Jefferson Street Parade Band, and Chainsaw Mondays. It can be found on the show's YouTube page, which can be found at tinyurl.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show YouTube. all one word. Please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes at tinyurl.com forward slash the Rob Burgess Show. Once you're signed into iTunes, hit subscribe. Click the tab on the iTunes page near the top that says Ratings and Reviews. From there, please leave a star rating, hopefully five stars, and click Write a Review to leave a review. Thanks again for the support. You can now also find The Rob Burgess Show on Stitcher at stitcher.com forward slash podcast forward slash the rob burgess show. Google Play Music at tinyurl.com forward slash The Rob Show Google Play. Tune in at tinyurl.com forward slash The Rob Show Tune In. You can also subscribe directly to the RSS feed at tinyurl.com forward slash The Rob Burgess Show RSS. If you're an Android user and you're still not sure how to listen, you can also visit the website subscribe on android.com forward slash tinyurl.com forward slash RSS. And if you have a one-click supported app on your Android device, the app will load automatically. You can find out more about me by visiting my website www.thisburgess.com. The official website for The Rob Burgess Show is www.therobburgessshow.com. Follow on Twitter at Rob Burgess Show. Like the page on Facebook at The Rob Burgess Show. Follow on SoundCloud at the-rob-burgess-show. The email for the show is Show at gmail.com. And now, on to the show.
1: Hello. Hey Ben, it's Rob. Hey Rob, how you doing this morning? Good. How are you, man? I'm doing all right. Cool. All right here.
0: Yeah. Thanks for doing this. I appreciate it. Heck yeah. <laughs> so uh, you just go ahead and tell people a little bit about yourself. Just gonna start off with here.
1: Right on. Well, so my name's Ben Fowler, and um, I am an active musician around Bloomington, Indiana here. Um, I uh, direct the Jefferson Street Parade Band, and um, I've played in several rock bands over the years, and um, I'm currently making my living teaching music lessons. Um, I've been teaching drum lessons and guitar and piano for about 13 or 14 years now, and um, I just started my own teaching studio called the jefferson street music studio um we started our first lessons here about three days ago at the start of may
0: cool yeah definitely um and we should say for people that haven't already figured it out uh you're the brother of jonathan uh my uh former roommate uh and uh you know, with pod, podcast guest uh, number two. So if uh, people want to go back and listen to that one, uh, you know, I, we just need to get your, uh, you guys' dad on now and we'll have the trifecta of the Fowler men. Um, there we go. But, uh, <laughs> so, uh, yeah, no, I've, uh, I've been a fan of your, uh, of your music for a long time, uh, going back all the way to, uh, cardboard, of course. Um, uh, yeah. yeah so uh you how, how did you get started uh with music i guess um i remember jonathan saying something about uh there was a was it an antique sign that that got sold that was your that bought your first drum set am i remembering that right
1: that's that that was how i got a hold of my second drum set. oh
0: okay so you had a drum set prior uh, to that okay
1: yeah my mom and i split the cost of a uh of a kind of a beginner drum set back when I was about 12 years old in the summer when we had, we had first moved to, uh, I guess it was the summer of 97 when we had first moved to Indiana from North Carolina, Mm -hmm. um, moved to Mitchell, Indiana. And, uh, yeah, I was, had had a pair of drumsticks for a couple of years and really, really felt like I wanted to dig in and, and get started learning the drum set. And so we, we split the cost of some beginner drums and, uh, But yeah, there's a pretty good story of that enamel sign. Um, There was a, a, let's see, we were remodeling a a building down on this land in Mitchell to live in, turning an old barn into a new house, basically, and uh, my parents found some Nice looking French doors at a at a yard sale or something in Mitchell, and um, they because French doors have a bunch of little panes of glass. They had the people that were selling them or storing them before that had uh, basically taken this old enamel sign and painted it black and and nailed it across the or you know locked it onto the doors to protect the glass while it was just in storage in their barn for a while. Mm-hmm. And they and so the sign came with the doors, and I. Went to the trouble of cleaning the paint off, and it turned out that it was a like a, I think a BF Goodrich tire sign from years and years ago, it was an old enamel sign. Mm-hmm. And uh, I ended up meeting some folks in Bedford who would list things on eBay for people, mm-hmm. and uh, for a, you know for a cut of the sale or whatever. And um, they ended up listing that enamel sign and and managing to sell it for five hundred dollars. Wow! And uh, and I used that that money to buy a really awesome old Thomas Swing Star drum set. It was like a seven piece drum set, big old monstrous <laughs> kit from back in the eighties. <laughs> right. <laughs>
0: Yeah, and that Mitchell property had some uh, interesting things on it too. Because I remember when uh, your mom was saying that she uh, dismantled what they were dismantling that uh, log cabin or whatever that was on the land, and there was like some newspapers from like when Lincoln was assassinated that apparently just disintegrated as soon as they touched the air or something.
1: Um, Yeah, I remember that there was there was an old log cabin on that land that was built in the 1860s, mm -hmm. and it was um, poplar logs and. I guess on the interior of the logs before the like there's a layer of like almost like a stucco kind of thing oftentimes, and then wallpaper on top of that uh-huh. um and the layer below the wallpaper was basically layered with newspaper just to as like a I don't know if it was just to bind it all together or just to kind of to finish and hold the mortar in place. And we could read some of the newspaper as we were taking that apart back when I was a kid. And... um yeah, the cabin went up in the 1860s, and there was a there was an Indiana newspaper article about the assassination of Abraham Lincoln Right. plastered into the wall there, <laughs>
0: like it was just another uh, piece of paper, just to just to throw in there, not that's like a historical right. just, document uh, or whatever.
1: <laughs> right, just that. Uh, throw it into the wall, no problem.
0: <laughs> exactly. Yes, indeed. So, uh, well, that's cool, man. So, was the drums the first thing you wanted to learn? Did you did you learn how to play guitar? Uh, around that time or when when, what was the order
1: drums were my first thing Mm -hmm. i definitely um started strumming around on an acoustic guitar maybe a couple years after that Mm -hmm. um never quite with the focus or the determination that i approached the drums with for whatever reason um i do still really enjoy playing the guitar and working on it and trying to gain ground on it as i go um Mm -hmm. But the drums really grabbed me. I remember, you know, once I got that drum set, at first I really couldn't make heads or tails of it. I didn't know what I was doing, and I, you know, I loved to kind of tap along and play along with music that I liked, but I wasn't, um, um, I wasn't, I had no idea how to play a rock beat. I would just kind of play eighth notes along on, on a snare drum or on a, before I had the kid, I would just you know, play along with CDs on like pillows and chairs and things. Mm -hmm. And I really didn't know how to translate it to actually playing what people were doing in, in songs. Mm -hmm. So there was a, there was a period of time in that winter after we got those drums that I kind of just hung it up and said, forget it. This is too frustrating. I don't know what I'm doing. Um, And then that next spring, I remember um, getting on, getting online and finding some kind of website that was, along the lines of like you know b- Jim's first drum lesson right here for you on the internet you know and uh, <laughs> right. and it was like a, it was like a written basic rock beat kind of mm-hmm. like a boom chick bop chick kind of a groove uh-huh. and it pointed out which hand was supposed to do what what you know what your foot was supposed to do and when and how to read it and then it had a little clip of what it should sound like and it also listed a bunch of songs that had that groove in it Mm -hmm. And that was really eye-opening for me. Like that's how I started figuring out what was going on with drumming in all these, you know, all the rock songs I was listening to is just, just that kind of was the key that opened the door. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then I started hearing, hearing that beat everywhere and hearing little variations of it everywhere and trying to learn those variations. And, and later that summer I started taking lessons and, and, uh, kind of really dug in from that point onward.
0: Okay, cool. Do you find that since you um, did the drums first and then moved into guitar and things like that, do you do you find that it's helped your guitar playing? Because I know for me, for example, I, I play guitar uh, since I was 12. Not great, but I do. Um, and yeah. I find that one of the harder things that I have to work on is when the strumming pattern of the uh, guitar is on a different, I don't know if it's a different beat or a different syncopate, I don't know what the word is, but it, it's yeah different than the singing? Like, I feel like that's a really hard thing for me to overcome. Did you feel like that helped you at all when you came time for the guitar?
1: I think that, yeah, I think that people who start out on the drums often have, I guess, any instrument that you start with kind of lends certain advantages to Mm -hmm. other instruments that you try to learn. I think that that's, I think there's a general truth to that. I think that um, people who play the drum set basically have to get good at doing several things at once rhythmically. Mm -hmm. And so that certainly makes it easier to, to learn some songs on the guitar where the strumming pattern is, is different from the vocal rhythm. um, Not to say that it's always totally easy, but it's, it's a skill that drummers develop. So it's like a skill that has helped, um, Lately I've been learning some Red Hot Chili Peppers songs on the guitar mm-hmm. and playing the, some of those songs with my students. And it's always striking, like, learning songs by bands who have a different singer than... Like, the singer does not play the guitar, mm-hmm. for example. Where right. oftentimes... You know, no one is having to juggle that. You know, in the original recording, no one is having to do that live in their band. So I'll be trying to trying to play a Chili Pepper song, and the vocal rhythm is just totally whacked out, and the guitar rhythm is also totally whacked out, and it's <laughs> it's yeah. um, really something, really something, I tell you.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and St. and whoever they got playing uh, guitar at the time are definitely two different people. So <laughs>
1: indeed, indeed. Um, but yeah, and so. it's John Frusciante—that's the guy who—that's the guy. Whose guitar playing really grabs me from right. the various eras. Right, he really said some stuff on that instrument.
0: Oh, definitely, I totally agree. Um, now, so uh, cardboard was, I guess, your your first uh, band, right? Did you have anything before that? That was the first. That was the first. Yeah. yeah. And what? When? Yeah. Uh, how old were you when you guys started uh, playing together? 14. Wow, okay. And were you guys all kind of in the same place uh, musically as far as like your instruments and, and knowing things like that? Did you kind of learn
1: kind of together? I think we definitely learned a lot together. We all started out, you know, with the ability to play some songs, um, you know, stuff, stuff that we had learned on our own, we kind of brought together and we would show each other. You know, I remember David Woodruff playing a couple of... I think he was playing a couple of Weezer songs and a couple of Nirvana songs that he had learned and um I was trying to play along with like the Who and Led Zeppelin and that kind of stuff and and um and um initially when we started it was it was we we I guess our first bass player was um Andrew Chesterfield, I think was his name, Mm -hmm. and he didn't stick around too long. Um, There was another guy early on in the band named Ben Graves, and uh, he and David had been playing music kind of before I joined up, and and we didn't overlap for very long. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, that classic cardboard hit, Let's Go Egg Ben's House, was actually written for Ben Graves. I think there's a common misconception that that's about I, my
0: yeah, house. Yeah, I, I always thought that was your house, and I was like, "Why are they egging the house of somebody that's already in the band?" <laughs> <laughs> seems counterintuitive. Why would he consent to
1: play drums in this song? Yeah, exactly. Guess, uh, yeah, it really raised a lot of questions. For people, but but uh, we're here to we're here to crack open the mist.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right.
1: <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs>
0: right, so uh yeah so i uh, I got to know your your music that way. I definitely went to a a few cardboard shows there um what what did you guys uh what were your main you said you mentioned a few influences there, but were you guys always playing your own songs or were you playing covers together or was it was it always that way that you guys wanted to do your own stuff?
1: We definitely tried playing some covers, and it was often just pretty um Pretty unsatisfying for whatever reason. Um, we uh, we would practice once a week once we got the ball rolling and and uh, and pretty early on we got excited about writing our own songs. I think we pushed David pretty hard to to write songs and to sing even when he was not necessarily feeling like okay here's a great song i've written it was just kind of like let's let's play let's get some stuff done so that we can get out and play and mm-hmm. and we all you know we all dove into it pretty pretty quick like that i think we covered a red hot chili pepper song we covered once graham campbell was playing guitar in the band later that Freshman year, we covered "Purple Haze" for a little while. Mm-hmm. We covered. Um,
0: well, you guys played "Fire," right? Too wasn't that one of the ones you we covered? did?
1: We we played we played "Fire." We we also did um, a really awesome Radiohead song called "Just" mm. that's off of. Um, I think it's off of their second album. Mm-hmm. One of their earlier, more rockin' albums, right? Um, but yeah, like we we played several several of these songs, but. They would oftentimes end up being kind of the weakest part of the gig, so we, 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 we would quit. We would we would quit with the covers and just try to work on our own stuff more often. Right.
0: Well, it's it's easy when you're that age to kind of just emulate things you know because you don't really know anything else. So I think it is kind of cool. I always thought it was cool that you guys kind of went out on a limb and decided to do your own stuff. Because I mean, I, you know, heck, I was in a couple bands and all we did was covers, and we, you know, didn't really ever stick our necks out there like that. So I did. I was always. Uh, that you guys just went went right into it, and you know, didn't rely on people's pre knowledge of you know the songs to to get you through. So, um, but you guys had how many albums did you guys eventually have? Was it two?
1: We re- we recorded two CDs. Okay.
0: Yeah, and I've got yeah. those uh, somewhere still um, <laughs> saved on the on the thing here. I probably burned a copy of those like ten years ago. <laughs> so they're in the yeah, they're in the great. Rob Burgess archive somewhere. So
1: <laughs> yeah last uh, last time I caught up with you up in uh-huh. Uh North of Indy, there you you uh, you gave me a copy, which is why I still have them. <laughs> oh, okay, cool, cool. So, yeah, yeah, there was
0: some uh, some definite hits on there. I'm I'm trying to remember the names of some of them, but uh, yeah, what was it? Uh, El Rego, was the, was that one? The ones? was one of
1: the one of the few that Graham played trumpet on. That was yep. a real catchy song.
0: Yeah, right. absolutely. And then, uh, God, what was the other one? There was another uh, trumpet song. It was on the second album, I believe. Uh, that was There's another
1: one with. Called, there's one called "Rest Your Head." That was, yeah, we were we were leaning on our ska roots. That's for sure. Oh, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> I detected
0: some uh, Cake influence there too. So. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Yeah, the, sure. um, that
1: Cake album, "Fashion Nugget." Oh yeah, was, was a pretty good listen back in those days. Yeah. So I, was, I definitely enjoyed that CD.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, same here for sure. Um, so you guys lasted for how long? Did you, would, uh, do you guys went through all, all the way through high school, right? And then kind of, you guys all kind of went your separate ways, uh, kind of after high school. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think the next year after high school, we we played. A handful of shows. David went to school. Our front man, David Woodruff, went to school out in Kansas City. Mm -hmm. So we played some shows over spring break and over winter break and maybe a little bit that next summer. But after that, it was about the end of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that group sort of – well, David and I, uh, when he he did move back to Bloomington a couple of years in to college, Mm -hmm. he and I – and Julian Bransby, and eventually Matt Romy, and then eventually Nick Romy uh, got another group going called The Delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Cardboard played for four or five years, and The Delicious also played for four or five years following mm-hmm.
0: that. Right. Yeah. And I definitely went to a few of those shows as well. Um, did you guys? You guys had at least one CD that I remember, right?
1: Yeah, we had a full length CD and mm-hmm. also an, an EP that we released after that. Right, right.
0: What would you say the differences between the musically between the two groups? I mean, there was obviously the overlap of you and David, but what was the kind of progression as far as what you were interested in
1: playing? Well, I guess um cardboard was was our first go at it and it was it was kind of influenced by everything, influenced by everything that we'd, you know, been listening to in our lives up to that point. And um you know, it was just our first our first bunch of tries at writing songs and, you know, coming up with riffs and coming up with beats and seeing where we could take them. And I guess The Delicious was just maybe a little more, I don't know, maybe a little more in the indie rock vein in a certain sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm trying to think what some of the biggest influences were when we were getting that band started. Maybe The Walkman and The Strokes and The Shins and Modest Mouse and Spoon. And, um, I'm sure lots of others, but those were, those were some bands that we were getting to see live around that time and that were, that were having an impact on us. Um, right. but it was good to just start over after a certain point, you know, although it's the same drummer and the same front man, <laughs> um, it was good to just reimagine the whole thing for a while and see where it, you know, see where we could go with it, uh, Starting over there,
0: right, right. Now, uh, at what point did uh, I'm, I'm trying to remember? You've been in so many bands, and sometimes multiple ones at the same time. Uh, the hardest working man in show business on the line here. But uh, um, now you were in uh, Kentucky Nightmare at the same time, or is that after?
1: That was roughly the same time as the Delicious. Okay, there's a lot. There's a lot of overlap of over those years. Right. Uh, Kentucky Nightmare started when I was. Um, probably 19 or 20, mm-hmm. and at that time it was a trio, it was um, Simon Moore on uh, on uh, guitar and vocals and principal songwriter, and then um, Evan Farrell was playing bass with us, mm-hmm. and uh, that went on for a year or a year and a half, we recorded a CD called There's Vampires in Them Hills <laughs> uh, in my basement. <laughs> nice. <laughs> And uh, and then Evan ended up getting a gig with a band out of California called Rogue Wave, hmm. and uh, he moved out there and got to do a lot of touring. And we kind of put the put the band on the back burner for a while, and um, and eventually it it uh, took flight once again with. Uh, with my perennial bandmate David Woodruff uh, on lead guitar, and with Karen Jensen playing bass. Okay. And and that was a really excellent incarnation. We made our our second album with that lineup, and did some touring with that lineup, and mm-hmm. so forth.
0: Right, and that's a, I'd always thought that was a great band name, and and also a great album title. It was just it has a lot of evocative uh, imagery there. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, so were any of you from Kentucky, or where did the name come from exactly?
1: Um, Karen and Simon were from Tennessee, Okay, grew up around Nashville area, uh-huh. and, um, David's from Indiana, right. and originally originally's from North Carolina, sure. Evan Farrell's originally from Vermont, I believe, so okay. no, none of us are from <laughs> Kentucky, it's a, it's a space ghost coast to coast reference. In is fact. it? Okay. Yes, there's a, um, I believe it's in reference to an imaginary business or corporation that's like the... Oh, I really don't remember. Something along the lines of the Kentucky Nightmare Talk Show Whiskey Corporation or something (laughs) like that. Uh, so you'll have to do your own research on that. But. Yeah, uh, I have the
0: computer in front of me, and I'm. You can maybe hear me clicking around. But, um, <laughs> um, so yeah, so that was uh, that was during uh, college as well when you're at IU, right? So that was when you were how That's old correct. were you? Were you? Would you say? Like oh, I was or in so? that. I was in that
1: band from the time I was nineteen or twenty until um, until I was probably twenty three or twenty four. something okay. like Okay. Um, and does
0: that bring us to? The the uh, parade band or was there other bands in between I felt like you were kind of a contract drummer or somebody that was kind of filling in for people kind of here and there in the meantime is that correct
1: there was there was one pretty awesome opportunity that I that I received as a as a hired gun right after let's see maybe one year after I was done with college I, I got hired um, in the spring of 2009 to, to play drums with an artist called D.M. Stith. It was really a guy named David Stith who had recorded his first album pretty much by himself. Um, not entirely, but he had done a lot of multi-tracking and overdubbing of keyboards and vocals and guitar and um, all kinds of found sound-derived percussion and made this really beautiful album Um, And then he was getting some buzz over in Europe at that time and um, needed to put a band together to go play his songs on the road. And I got hired to go to Europe for three weeks and tour around with DM Stith. And we went to Berlin and then flew down to Milan and played in Milan and Rome and um, Bologna. And then we flew to Belgium played a couple days in the Netherlands and Belgium and France and then we took a ferry to England and played a couple days in England then we went back to France and then we went back to England and then we went to Ireland and played played a couple of days up in Ireland and uh, you know getting paid (laughs) getting paid to play drums in Europe it was really amazing.
0: Well that's awesome now what are the differences uh, as far as like uh, being a like you said, hired gun, as opposed to somebody that, you know, obviously has a creative control over the band? Is it relaxing that you're just kind of there because it's a job, or is it kind of frustrating because you wish you could have more
1: input, or, or how does that work? Well, that that particular gig was a, was a pretty cool blend of both. I, I actually was able to have quite a lot of creative control. Hmm. In fact, I was, so I'd, I'd gone to school and studied the drum set, and uh, studied jazz drum set at IU, and um, you know, I guess there there comes a point where you get uh, where it's nice to change it up, you know. And uh, I wasn't I wasn't really I wasn't quite feeling playing the drum set with the DM Stiff songs, and I ended up con- like coming up with a, a really jumbled up, strange little percussion rig that that. Um, where I was, like, wearing a bass drum on some on some guitar straps, mm. and then I had a lot of other accessories kind of on all sides of me around that, and I played sometimes with sticks, sometimes with mallets, um, had shakers strapped to my feet and all kinds of fun stuff. Mm. And uh, there was a lot of creative control is what I'm getting at. I was able to wing it and let the show really develop, like, over the course of the three-week tour. Um Actually, over the course of that tour, the lineup changed. Like, we had we had various musicians that couldn't be there right at the beginning of the trip who joined in, you know, um, this woman named Maria who played the cello on that tour joined us maybe two days in, in Milan, and she was late because she was playing with David Byrne in New York City, like, the night before. Mm. Wow. <laughs> it was a great, that's a really great reason to not be able to go to Europe yet, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she was, she was playing cello, um, Maria Jeffers is her name, um, and then this woman, Marla Hansen, who lives in Berlin with her partner Christian, um, she was touring with us playing viola. On the first few gigs, Christian played some clarinet and some saxophone with us, and then he stayed in Berlin. So we lost the reed instrument, but we got the cello added in, and then a couple of days after that, um, our bass player, Mike Dixon, joined us in Belgium mm-hmm. um, and stayed with us for the remainder of the trip. So not only was my percussion rig continually developing, and not only was my, were my parts developing, but the band kept growing the whole time, too. Um, and I really I really think that David Stiss is a unique... Frontman in how much um freedom he's he's willing to work with within his band i think i think being a hired gun in a you know a pop group is typically a lot more regimented than what we right we would we would schedule rehearsals at like rental rehearsal spaces in europe along the way and just like hash out more sections of songs and figure out new ways of doing things as we went and and it it just kept you know kept getting a bit a bit more effective and beautiful the whole way, which I, mm-hmm. I thought was, yeah, a really unique experience to get to have Yeah, well, I
0: mean, it seems like there's uh, there's two kinds of band leaders like that. It seems like there's people like what you're describing, and then I was kind of thinking of maybe more like the James Brown Prince model of you know regimented. I'm gonna find you or inflict some kind (laughs) of pain on you if you don't get in line and and act like you're supposed to or look like you're supposed to or whatever.
1: (laughs) Um, Right. Here's exactly what I want, and I know what I want, and you know, and you better do it, and you better do it well. Right. I
0: can I can replace you tomorrow with fifty other people. or <laughs> whatever yeah, uh, kind of thing. Yeah. but that, that's no cool <laughs> yeah, right. um, now is that something you'd ever consider doing again i mean was that something that he left the possibility of you coming back and, and doing or how did that end up
1: it ended up we we played we went back to europe one more time that summer and played some shows in england played a couple of festivals um and then we played a couple of shows in new york city that fall and um It seems like part of his M.O. is just to keep changing it up. And I, you know, in terms of any kind of work together, I haven't heard from him since then, which is which is fine. I know he's still doing his thing. He's still out there Mm -hmm. making a bunch of music. Maybe he lives down in Austin, Texas now, or or I know if he was for a while. And then I think he's been back in New York State Mm -hmm. somewhere. And um Yeah, our our paths have not crossed. It would be cool if they do again sometime. Who knows? Right, right. Well, I
0: guess I guess as just a music fan, mostly, I just kind of maybe romanticize things like that. And I always think, you know, and I kind of do the same thing with people that work on TV shows or movies together. I just assume that, oh man, they must be, you know, hanging out all the time. And really, it's you know, it's your it's it's fun, and Mm -hmm. it's you're playing music, but it is a job. You know what I mean? And as you are working together, and Mm -hmm. it is kind of weird to think, you know, some of the things about like you know like the Rolling Stones for example have known each other since they were 14 years old and it's like yeah. can you imagine working for 60 years with somebody you knew when you were 14 <laughs> years old it's it's kind of crazy but i mean this That's is incredible. you know as much of a job as it is a fun recreation as it is anything you know what i mean so
1: <laughs> yeah it has both sides it's like some it's it's on some kind of a sliding scale between it being you know a, a totally dry day job, and on the other end of the spectrum, being like a completely free creative outlet, you know? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Every, every band finds itself somewhere on that spectrum. Right. If you want to think of it that way. You don't have to, but it's you know it's one way to look at it.
0: Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, so, as far as uh, the parade band, when did that form, and when, was there was there any other bands I'm missing in between that start of that and the end of kind of what you're describing?
1: Um, another group that I played with, maybe starting freshman year of college, is called the Names. Okay. Did you, ever catch, did you ever catch that? I feel band like maybe
0: I saw at least one show. That sounds very familiar. Um, was this? This was in, uh, you guys played around Bloomington, right?
1: We did. Yeah, we played Bloomington, and then occasionally we went. I think we went down to Nashville, Tennessee, a couple of times.
0: Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I, I'm pretty sure I saw at least one show of that. Was that uh, Karen Jensen also? In that band? Yeah,
1: that's how I met Karen. She yeah. and, and Nick Synex and the guy named Preston Garrett.
0: Okay, I definitely saw that band then. Yes.
1: Okay. Yeah. So that that group played for two or three years during college, and um, yeah, another another rock indie rock type of affair. <laughs> but <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it, uh, I suppose to get to the parade band, since that is kind of my main thing now. Um, the way that the way that the Jefferson Street parade band got started was um, I guess in the winter of 2008 2009 um, after I'd finished college that previous spring I was I was definitely missing playing music with horn players that, that had been a, a real perk of the of the music school experience was being in jazz combos and Latin ensembles and big bands and, and so forth with, excuse me, with some really good horn players. And um, so I I had also, that same summer, I had gotten to do a fair amount of touring with Kentucky Nightmare and The Delicious, and I had played drums on a cruise ship for a stretch of time that summer. Um, and I guess through the course of all those experiences, I got pretty tired of um, playing for audiences who maybe weren't really that tuned into the music, mm-hmm. it's like, um, we would, I was really proud of all the rock bands that I played in over the years, really proud of the music we were writing and, you know, the level we were performing at. But, you know, you go to a lot of trouble to book a tour yourself and to, you know, to get a van and get out and work every night that way. But a lot of bars we would end up at. You know, there might be ten people there. There might be uh, three people there. Sometimes, you know, certainly some exceptions. There were some really amazing nights on those trips, but it got it got pretty repetitive. Where there would be these these gigs, you know, where people cared a lot more about what they're going to drink next, or you know, whatever their own mo was for the evening, and you're just over there in the corner pouring your heart out but nobody's being particularly moved by it and you know it's a heck of a lot of energy for for it to not really move people you know like Mm -hmm. what's the point of this after a while right and um and we have our recordings that we're proud of and this and that but if the live show is not gripping if it's not really doing anything for people then it, it started to feel like not not what i wanted to be doing so much of not what i wanted to be putting so much energy into um so anyway, back in the in the winter of 2008, 2009, I was missing playing with horn players, and I was tired of playing kind of in this genre where enough, I mean, in rock and roll, it's like enough has become predictable mm-hmm. that it is pretty hard to freak people out anymore, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I had this idea one day while I was waiting tables. Wouldn't it be fun to put together like a parade band where we could play music outside with a bunch of drums and a bunch of horn players and really catch people off guard, you know, put on a show where they're not expecting it and so forth and see what happens, see what kind of experiences we can, we can, uh, elicit in the process.
0: Right. So, uh, now I assume you weren't in, uh, any kind of marching band in, uh, your younger days, Right.
1: I did one year of high school marching band at Bloomington South. Ah, okay. And, um, and it did me a lot of good. I, my my chops got better on the drums, and I I got a better sense of rhythm for mm. sure from that experience. But I really, at that time, I was all about playing rock and roll, and I wasn't I wasn't so excited about the the time commitment involved in the marching band. So I just did one year of it and, and left it at that. I didn't, I didn't play in any marching band in college or anything. Right.
0: Yeah. See, I was in uh, just regular band in junior high and I played the trumpet. And uh, yeah. of course we, when we get to high school, that's when the marching band kicks in and then they bring out the uniforms and it's like, I just want to play music <laughs> and now I have to wear this outfit and play for the football players. Yeah. It's like, so I only mm-hmm. did one year of that. Cause that was, you know, I was, I was awkward enough uh, at that age without having, uh, you know, whatever, whatever, however you want to describe the marching band uniform without
1: the blue and gold tassels. You know? Yeah, yeah,
0: without the plume on my head, I was, I was already, uh, enough, I was already enough of a weirdo without that. I didn't really need any any more attention drawn to myself. Um,
1: yeah, thanks, but no thanks. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Uh, so I,
0: one year of that was enough for me. But, um, but yeah, I mean, it sounds like this was more on your own terms, and, and you guys obviously have your own uh, creative control. So. So, um, you obviously were going to do the some, some drumming on that. But what was the progression as far as you, you said you wanted to get some horns involved again? Uh, what, what other yeah. instruments were you were kind of looking for when you were putting this together?
1: Well, initially we were. Um, let's see. First thing I did was call, or I guess, text my friend Sophie Fott, who I had played some music with in college. She's a really excellent tenor saxophonist. Um, and I just asked her if she would be interested in participating and being a part of this thing, and see if it sounded like fun to her or not. Um, and I didn't hear anything for a couple of days, and finally she got back and said, "Yeah, let's see, let's see what happens. Let's put some ideas together." Um, and part of the inspiration early on um, was, well, a big part of the inspiration was definitely. West African percussion traditions. I was listening a lot to um, this drummer named Famadu Konate, uh, who's from Guinea. Mm. I had first heard his music when I was about 18 um, down in North Carolina. Um, This guy, Andrew Moore, who was working for my dad doing construction at the time, had studied with Famadu a couple of times and um, showed me some of his recordings. And um, I got to sit in on some... West African drum and dance classes that happen in Asheville a couple times a week while I was down there in the summer, and um, it's just a completely different rhythmic sense and and rhythmic style of composition that's happening and and has been happening for a lot of centuries presumably in West Africa, mm-hmm. um, and it really cracked my head open as to some you know some different ways to think about rhythm and to compose rhythm. So in getting the parade band started, we we basically strapped together some, you know, random drums and accessories, drums and cowbells uh, that were lying around my basement from parts of drum sets that weren't being used and started learning some of Famadu's songs and started kind of writing rhythms in that style. And Sophie rounded up two or three horn players. There was a guy named um, Jake Handelman who played trombone and a guy named Matt Nowlin who played trumpet with us for a while. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Anson Honey was playing drums, and Dan Morris was playing drums, and a guy named Evan Noyes was playing drums with us in those early months and years. Um, that was kind of the first incarnation of the band. Mm-hmm. So, that- so, so there was the there was the West African thing, and we also were, were definitely playing some Latin American music. Um, there was a song from Cuba that we did, and a song from Colombia, and a song from... Um, well, actually, a couple of a couple of cu- Cuban songs, I suppose, that were that were part of it early on.
0: Right, right. So, how many uh, people uh, would that be total? Uh, cost count.
1: <laughs> I think at the beginning it was about seven of us, okay. something like that. And what is it currently? Well, <laughs> people ask me that, and I I usually just pull a pull an approximate number out of the air because there's a there's a certain amount of players who live elsewhere who will come out of the woodwork and join us when we go on tour and you know a certain amount of flux to who's currently active in the group but it it's between 10 and 15 mm-hmm. right now on a on a given gig usually mm-hmm.
0: So uh, as far as uh, I always wonder when when bands have that many members, uh, how it goes when you get paid? Is it like five dollars for every money? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> like with the Polyphonic Spree, when they go to play a gig, you know, they might command a couple thousand dollars, but by the time you get done splitting it between all fifty people, <laughs> it's like <laughs> right.
1: nobody's getting rich. Right?
0: Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like man, singer-songwriters not sound so bad
1: right now. <laughs> like, Indeed, there's a there's a there's a there's a there's a division of the of the assets that's for sure gotcha <laughs> um, but I will say the Jefferson Street Parade Band has the ability to get paid a lot more than than almost any project that I've been a part of so uh-huh. on the one hand it gets divided but on the other hand we do get paid you know we can sure. We can we can play a you know a six hundred dollar gig, right. and the people paying for it will feel like they got their money's worth. We right. And we can pay a thousand dollar gig, and the people will feel like they got their money's worth. <laughs> We're not always <laughs> paying gigs like that, but they right. do come along. Sure. And it, um, and it it definitely definitely is one of my mOs to keep the musicians involved, well paid. You know, because mm-hmm. um, they're a talented bunch and and uh, they're working hard. Learning complicated music and shedding it, and and playing at a high level, and and so, you know, they deserve to get paid for it. So that's part of the, that's part of uh, how I, I think that's part of what keeps it at a high at a high level is that musicians come to it knowing that they're going to get some work along the way
0: yeah yeah absolutely um so uh what is the what is your opinion on as as far as uh you know kind of downloading music and it seems like the live show seems to be the main way that the bands uh you know are making money these days um do you kind of uh-huh. just kind of write that off as far as a revenue stream or is it just kind of like a you know I imagine the the re- recording is almost just a promotion for the live show at this point for for a lot of bands that are looking to make a living at it?
1: Yeah, I think I think for the Jefferson Street Parade Band, we have a unique advantage of, um, well, when we busk, when we play out on the streets, um, we end up selling a lot of CDs. And you know, there's a, there are different. I, I haven't studied the demographics of who who streams and who downloads and who buys online, but presumably, a lot of the people who are still buying CDs are a little older and a lot of the people who are, you know, um, the Napster generation are not buying CDs. (laughs) (laughs) There's, there's Napster and Grooveshark and Spotify and YouTube and on down the line, all these, all these, um, all these ways of, of not paying for music that's here. (laughs) Um, it just is what it is. I mean, there's, there's no way around it at this day and age that a lot of music is listened to for free. Mm Um, it's, it definitely still feels important to record albums and to um, to sell them and to put videos on YouTube. All that stuff still feels still feels like very legitimate ways to reach an audience and to have your have your music listened to. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't know. It's like back through the years, people were copying cassette tapes. People were, mm-hmm. I guess, in the in the era of vinyl, there was a time when people couldn't copy each other's records and had to borrow or steal i suppose right <laughs> but but not too long after that you got to where you could, you know, record a cassette tape off of someone else's vinyl. Mm-hmm. And, you know, where there's a will, there's a way.
0: Sure. Absolutely. Um, well, I remember there was a Dead Kennedys album that they left the other side intentionally blank of the tape. They, it, it, the message was, uh, home recording is killing music. We're trying to help by leaving the second side of this blank so you can record your own or something. <laughs> it was it was pretty funny. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I, think, uh, I think people kind of in this day and age have to decide what career creators they support and how they want to support them best because like you said it's kind of yeah. is what it is at this point and you can't really put the genie back in the bottle or the toothpaste back in the tube or whatever metaphor you want to use um you more, know to good metaphors yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah but um uh, yeah i feel like people kind of just have to decide you know what do what what artists do i want to support and what you know who, which creators do i want to keep being able to make a living at creating and, and kind of doing it that way yeah like you said it is kind yeah. is what it is these days, you know.
1: So, yeah. The other the other side of it, um, even if we were to put the genie back in the bottle, mm-hmm. there's there's like a huge there's a huge amount of cash that gets scraped off the top back when that genie was in that bottle. Yeah. Of all the accountants and all the bureaucracy of the record labels that where mm-hmm. everybody was making a living and the musicians weren't always you know usually weren't making a living um, even even as the ones creating the product. Um, right. So that whole that whole paradigm of, you know, getting signed to a record label, being a desirable thing, I feel like that, that there are still, um, people still hold on to that, like musicians that I know who are my age or a little older, a lot of them still have that in their head mm-hmm. or they did 10 years ago as a, you know, wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't that be a huge a validation or a huge goal realized or this or that, but um you know, it really wouldn't. <laughs> it really wouldn't have been, is the answer. And right. uh, it's, it's really much better now in certain regards because you can self-promote and you can um, home record to a really high level and you can um, you can make your own art and you can, you know, be very self-directed about finding an audience for it. And you're not paying any accountants unless you want to, you know, you're not, you're not paying, you're not carrying along some, some giant bureaucratic dinosaur in the process. Unless, unless you somehow find some twisted way to do that of your own accord, that's not what's going on anymore. You know, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) uh, with, with, with a few exceptions, there are artists on that level that are, um, still carrying, you know, still carrying the weight of Warner brothers on their songs (laughs) or this or that, which is really, you know, the songs are usually a bummer. Uh, <laughs> <and> <laughs> And uh, it, it all—I don't know—just desserts or something. Sure, it is what it is? That's that's uh <laughs> Yeah. I'm not looking back. I don't know. Not yeah.
0: About it. Well, there's there's no use in, in looking back. You just kind of got to live in the reality that you're in or whatever. But um, it's funny you mentioned yeah. Warner. It's uh, it's interesting seeing what's happened with Prince's uh, back catalog here. Uh, my heart kind of sank when I heard they drilled his safe open. I was like, ugh, you know, he wow. went through this yeah. protracted, protracted uh, fight with his uh, record label. And he had slave on his face for years, and he changed his name because they said they owned his name. And finally, one yeah. off back as all his masters. And then, oops, doesn't have a will, or we can't find one. And now we're, you know, his body's barely cold, or barely been cremated, and we're going to drill the safe yeah. that he had for years open. That
1: made me feel a little icky, or whatever. But that um, is really something. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Got to jump on that. Got to jump on that post mortem best of real quick. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I plan well, for it. Right. <laughs> well,
0: I was thinking about it though, and kind of with the proximity of David Bowie dying you know David Bowie yeah. definitely had more of a sense I felt like that his time was coming to an end or whatever and of course he put yeah. out that Black Star album I don't know if have you heard that yet?
1: Parts of it, yeah. That I haven't heard the whole thing yet.
0: It's uh, it's it's quite a listen or whatever because you can definitely tell that he you know knew that his time was approaching. He's like, okay, I'm an artist. You know, this is a big moment in my life, even though it's the end. I'm going to make a statement or whatever. Yeah. And you yeah. know, he definitely kind of seemed like he planned it out a little bit more. But Prince, it just kind of seemed like he was just in the middle of doing whatever you know weird, goofy stuff. He was in the middle of doing, then he just kind of stopped. So, <laughs> yeah, right.
1: Yeah, right. And then so it yeah,
0: it's uh, it's kind of. I think people kind of want that same experience immediately that they had with David Bowie and it's like look not everybody you never this is was special because you're not going to get this every time not everyone knows yeah, you know <laughs> their such time's going to be over.
1: Yeah, there's nothing there's nothing like lucky about it but you know the the death of David Bowie is a really rare instance in mm-hmm. pop music or in art in general where someone who had so many identities throughout his life and who also took his own identity with a grain of salt mm-hmm. could look at his own death you know in 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 um in the near future and react artistically to it you know right like, uh, i think there's something really really rare about that yeah yeah
0: definitely um, but yeah people so people luck. definitely ate good that up the,
1: <laughs> yeah good luck to the record labels you know trying to recreate that with the death <laughs> and death, you know <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good those luck. Are, those are two really, two really iconic artists to have lost this spring. It's really, really something. I mean, they they both they both were some of those kind of pop geniuses who, mm-hmm. on some of their albums, pretty much played every instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, pretty much took their musical vision from start to finish and from bottom to top. You know, in their in their arrangement and their performance and and. Um, and you know did it well <laughs> oh yeah on such a high level it's amazing
0: absolutely um i mean if you watch like some of these i mean the videos that have been coming out about prince are just amazing like you'll they'll show him like switching instruments within the same song and it's like okay well he's playing guitar better than anyone i've ever seen play guitar and now he's going to go play yeah. drums better than anyone i've ever seen <laughs> play drums and now he's going to go play bass better than you know it's like okay calm down dude we get it <laughs> like,
1: yeah, yeah yeah we, um, we, we are we with you here <laughs> yeah exactly
0: you win <laughs> so, um, but yeah you're right that's that's been a quite an experience losing both of those and it, it's interesting with with artists like that you don't really at least I didn't you know maybe other people did but you know I didn't really get the full scope of what they had done until they were gone and you know it seems like it's it's almost kind of weird it's like we don't feel like we can give ourselves permission to really take in someone's body of work until they're gone it's almost like oh I want to wa- I want to start watching this TV show but I don't, I don't know where it's gonna Yet, so I'm just going to wait till it's over, and then I'll just binge watch the whole thing. I feel like it's almost like people yeah. are in that mode with like people's music now. It's like uh, well, let's wait till they're dead and see where this goes, you know. And then I'll then I'll absorb it all. But it's like you could just do it now while they're alive, you know.
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, help them out a little bit.
0: Yeah, I'm sure they'd love to hear <laughs> all these wonderful tributes while they're still around to hear them. You know.
1: <laughs> yeah. So I had some friends visiting um, New Orleans back in January, right around. I guess toward the end of the month, not long after Bowie passed away. And, um, and apparently a parade went by, they just missed it. Like they, they were at a show or they were at eating dinner and they, and they stepped out and they saw a baby going by in a baby carriage with like the David Bowie lightning bolt across <laughs> his face. And then they saw some other people dressed up as different eras of different personas of David Bowie. And, and they asked somebody and apparently there had been a a parade on a cart led by the guys from the arcade fire hmm. singing Bowie songs. And it was just hundreds and hundreds or, or thousands of, of people uh, doing this parade that they, that they put together in the course of like two or three days Wow, um, down in New Orleans. It would have been amazing to, to see it. I recommend do, I, I, I have intended myself to do some more research about that and check out some videos of it. Um, but what a cool testament! It's and it was that was my thought too. Is like, damn, it would have been cool if if Bowie could have seen that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Well, yeah, people don't feel moved to do that until they're like, oh man, no more music. It's like, well, you know, they they, they might like to hear that, you know, <laughs> while yeah, here. yeah. Um, uh, so it is. Yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, you, you mentioned that you had some uh, some wild uh, touring stories with the uh, with the parade band. Did you have any uh, queued up that you felt like Sharon.
1: oh let's see um <clears throat> well i think we'll start at the very end of our last tour mm-hmm. um we got to go down to austin texas at the end of march and play at a festival called honk texas mm. um it was pretty funny my brother called me while we were down there and uh and the phone connections usually aren't so good between South Korea and Indiana. And he said, "Well, I talked to Mom, and she said you're down in Texas at a honky tonks festival." <laughs> and I said, "No, no, no, honk, honk, Texas! It's a brass band festival." Uh, and it turns out that these honk festivals are have become an international phenomena. There are the first ones were started in uh, maybe ten or eleven years ago, I believe, in Somerville, Massachusetts, just outside of Boston. Um, by a band called the Second Line Social Aid and Pleasure Society, I think is their name. I I hope I got that right. Um, This woman, Trudy, who plays the bass drum in that band, was one of the instrumental figures in getting honk started. And it's basically a convergence of, of street bands and parade bands and DIY or punk brass bands Hmm. from around the country. And now there are honk festivals in Seattle, Washington, um, Austin, Texas, Somerville, Massachusetts, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, Mm. and also somewhere down in Australia. I can't remember which city. Um, There's a character from this uh like a, I guess the the band leader from this Chicago group called Environmental Encroachment who brags about having been to 40 some honk festivals huh. even though it's only been around for 10 years or so he's uh, he's been to just about every single one um <laughs> So, anyway, there's this whole there's this whole tradition that we didn't know existed until we started a parade band and then we've met all these other wonderful people around the country who are you know, basically a lot of a lot of if I was going to generalize, I'd say it's a lot of really uh really active community members, really active like um active musicians and active artists and people putting a lot of energy into local communities wherever they're at and making a bunch of noise at rallies in some cases, making a bunch of noise at cultural festivities in other, in other cases. Um, it's really, it's really a diverse scene of music. Mm -hmm. So anyway, we, we got to play at this festival and meet a bunch of these people, um, some familiar faces Mm -hmm. and then met a whole lot of new people. Um, there was even a band from Moscow that played at that festival, um, and they flew to the U.S. strictly basically for that weekend, for that show, mm. um, and they headed home. And, wow. Um, they were excellent. <laughs> yeah. Really excellent group. Uh, but the, the a pretty pretty good, juicy, busking story from the last night of that tour uh, took place in Mobile, Alabama, Um there was a Dr. John show at a yeah. theater down the street from a gig that we had. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. John, by the way, is he's got to be in his 70s by now and still touring, still traveling and playing. Nice. Um, he was playing at a place called the Sanger Theater, which was a block and a half from where we were playing, which was at the, uh, at the Mary Widow. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the guy promoting our show was the same dude promoting the Dr. John show. So when we mentioned to him that we were thinking of Getting out and getting out and busking, getting out and playing on the streets before our gig to try to scare up some audience. Mm -hmm. He said, Oh, well, you should go play outside the Dr. John show by all means. He said, Here's exactly when he's starting and exactly when he's stopping, and you can try to steal his audience, you know? Uh, <laughs> well, borrow—I guess "borrow" is a better word because he would still have his audience. Sure, we wouldn't, yeah. we wouldn't take them from him during the show. Yeah, you can—you um, can, you can love more than one. <laughs> that's right. It's that kind of world these days. I tell yeah. you. What. So we—so uh, <laughs> we, uh, so we went over and played outside the theater before his set, and you know, people were really enjoying the music, and we were mm. playing well. We'd been on tour for a week, so we were pretty tight, and people were dancing and getting into it, and throwing some money into our hats and we're telling them all about our gig down the street, you know, come see us after the Dr. John show. Um, and then we came back and played at the end of his set and played a few songs. And then finally they opened the doors and this whole throng of people came pouring out and we just had them. We, 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 we had an audience of music lovers who were out to have a good time and we got them dancing again. And, and, um, and, uh, I didn't see it happen, but there was this old woman who was had like a tasseled leather jacket and a skirt on, and her her husband who was apparently from Terre Haute. We talked a little bit to him, mm-hmm. um, but in any case, she kept throwing twenties in our hats. Wow! Like she probably gave, and then whenever people give us that much money, we try to give them a CD, and give, you know, throw a little money back at them, mm-hmm. or throw throw a little music back at them so they can sure. You know, take us with them in that sense, and uh, by that time, she had probably given us $60, and my bandmates saw this, although I didn't. Uh, she apparently took her pantyhose off one at a time and threw them into our hat, mm. uh, so at the end of the night, I was I was looking over at Dylan, and I was like, hey, what's, what's this in the hat here, and he said, well, let me tell you, Ben, uh, <laughs> this old lady who was probably pushing 60, 70 years old. Decided to dance her way out of her pantyhose. She wow. liked that music so much. Wow! Yep, that's
0: that's yep. something to put on your resume right there. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's, that's what we figure. Just, uh, just another claim to fame. Out there in the world. <laughs> Sweet. Yeah, they 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 seem to party on into the golden years down in <laughs> Wow, it's pretty refreshing. For sure. Not quite um, as. Not quite as. Uh, not quite as um, I don't know the word for it. Things things seem a little more tame as you get older in the Midwest.
0: Sure, definitely.
1: York,
0: well, I heard an interesting <laughs> thing. I heard an a interview with David Simon, who uh, created the TV show Tremé, of course. Um, uh-huh. He was saying that the reason that New Orleans was such a hub of you know kind of the music that you're talking about, jazz and, and parade band music and all that, is that uh, after the Spanish American War, um, that's where all the soldiers uh, got off the boats and they had all these instruments I guess and they didn't want to take them home so they just dumped them off as they wow. were getting off the boat and so you could get like a sousaphone or you know whatever flugelhorn or whatever crazy brass instruments that uh, kind of came back from the war that nobody wanted and that's that was kind of part of the genesis of why jazz and all these other you know unique forms of American music happened where they did is it just happened that all these instruments were available all of a sudden at this one place and so it this like, you know, 15 block radius, you have this entire, you know, genres of music created just, just out of, you know, basically more or less found objects, you know,
1: so pretty amazing. There's another side, there, there, there's another side to that, to that history that I learned about really recently, Mm. uh, which is pretty fascinating and, um, it has to do with a slave revolt down in Cuba. Hmm. Um, there were these, there was, um... In 1809, there were over 10,000 St. Dominique, who are French-Haitian refugees, mm-hmm. that fled the area of a city called Santiago de, de Cuba. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of in the southeastern, it's a southeastern coastal city in Cuba. Mm-hmm. They, um, they fled Cuba in 1809 and went directly to New Orleans. And at that time, they nearly doubled the population of New Orleans. Hmm. Um, and they wound up continuing, like basically establishing uh, thriving sugar industries in both of those in, in 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 New Orleans, and then also maintaining their family ties to Cuba hmm. and strength and like you know developing this cultural um, exchange basically through the eighteen hundreds, through the early eighteen hundreds. And, uh, I don't know, one has to want, I mean, they, they say that that nearly doubled the population of New Orleans Mm -hmm. and it, you know, had to bring so much music with it. And people talk about New Orleans being the birthplace of jazz and Mm -hmm. of course the home of these parade bands and brass bands and Dixieland and all of this. But, um, you know, a lot of that goes back to Cuba, goes back to Africa, you know, one step away. Sure. And this, and this was a this was an instant an instant with this really big influ- influx of of French Haitian people. Hmm. Um, yeah, they, they came and stayed. They came and set up sugar plantations and so forth. Wow. in that Area, and uh, yeah, I just learned about that very recently. Apparently, there's a um, the way I learned about it was in hearing about this. There's a high school in New Orleans called the Warren Easton uh, Charter High School. Mm-hmm. Which is, I believe, like a uh, creative arts high school, and they're doing a three-year exchange program with students from the Conservatorio Esteban Salas de Santiago de Cuba, hmm. uh, where they're going to be both—they're uh, going to be jazz bands or bands of some sort from both of those schools that are going to be playing in one another's hometowns um, over the next three years and teaching and and studying with one another. Um, hmm. So, I got some information about uh, uh, you know about all of that because i've I've been curious about what it might look like to try to go to Cuba with my band someday. Uh, or so forth and so someone passed this info on to me and I thought it was pretty fascinating
0: oh wow yeah I'd love to go to Cuba now that the relations have changed I've always wanted to go there it looks really cool so indeed yeah Um, so yeah you mentioned a little bit at the beginning uh, that you had started a new music studio Uh, when did that kind of start and what was the genesis of that you said you've been given you know lessons for so long was this something you thought about doing for a long time
1: yeah, I've been I've been teaching privately since I was about 17 or 18, and I've been teaching in other people's shops for the past six years. I, I taught at Rewind in downtown Bloomington for five years, and then I was teaching at the Blockhouse, which is also it's more of a music studio and a venue, um, more of a more of a recording studio and a venue. I taught there for the past year or a little more, and um, and yeah, the opportunity presented itself to to start my own shop and, and um, take over the old Echo Park Studio B, which is out on the northwest side of Bloomington. it's a space that was made for music recording and for, for music in general. So it's very well equipped for recording work and for teaching work and for shows as well. Hmm. Um so the time finally came to, to just break off and do my own thing. It's um, It's been really good working with these other studios over the years, and it's allowed me to um, become a better teacher and to hone in on how I like to approach things. And and, uh, and now I have three to four functional rooms in this space where I can have different people teaching. I'm, that's part of the, the goal with it is to get several different musicians teaching side-by-side side up here. Um, Some of the people who are currently diving in to teach are uh, Aaron Comforti and Duran Jones and Sophie Fott and um, Alex Arnold and Sam Bartlett is eventually going to be joining in. He does old-time string band styles of music. Um, A couple of those people that I mentioned are saxophonists. There will be piano lessons and voice lessons and music theory lessons and audio recording lessons and, um, you name it, we'll teach it. (laughs) That's kind of been, been the idea is to get a bunch of, a bunch of really active Mm -hmm. professional Bloomington musicians together to teach so that, so that the students get an education that is, that is based on like, uh, I don't know, based on the efforts of like, musicians who are really going for it around the community right definitely
0: how has it been uh kind of moving from you know working in someone else's space to having your own space and kind of being a you know basically small business owner uh what you know advice would you have for people i know you think jonathan mentioned you set up an llc is that
1: right yeah i set up jefferson street music llc okay and that that covers both the parade band and the teaching operation in my life. And um I don't know. I think I think what I would say about it is that um it it I guess there's nothing wrong with working in other people's facilities and there's nothing wrong with, with um sharing other people's space. It just comes down to whether you're compatible or not and whether uh whether you feel like you have enough room, you know. And, and for myself, there came a point where I know I could be teaching more, but there's only so many hours available at the block house, or I know I could be, um, rounding up some more teachers, but, but I don't really have the, the time or, or the space for it to really make that happen. And so I don't know, the opportunity to take over rent on this, on this building, on the one hand, it's a little scary because it's a, it's a, it's a chunk of money going out the door every month, you know, and there's, Mm -hmm. there's no way around that, but, but it's such a huge opportunity to get to finally shape a space how I see fit and mm-hmm. to have a you know have a place twenty four seven to put on events to to rent it out for mm-hmm. band rehearsals to, uh, to to set up recording sessions to bring in teachers that I'm excited about working with mm-hmm. all that stuff is is just it's really kind of exhilarating you know it's it's a pretty big pretty big opportunity mm-hmm
0: Definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, uh, things that, you know, you, the whole DIY thing and kind of shaping your vision, how you would want to do it, um, yeah. obviously is, is huge, but you know, I, I used to think before I tried to start doing things for myself, it's like, Oh man, I, I don't want anybody telling me what to do. And, you know, but if you yeah. think about it, if you're uh if you're a small business owner, you're basically, it's like, yeah, you're the boss, but everybody that comes to you is your boss in a certain way, you know? So it's kind of yeah. like, you have all these little bosses as opposed to, you know, you are technically the boss, but you know, you're you're now beholden to everyone that comes through the door in a certain way.
1: So, you know, it, it is yeah, a Yeah, there's <laughs> a there's a relationship there where it's it's gotta be a lot of give and take. You gotta read what, what people need, what people want and mm-hmm. what people can offer to you and what you know, what you can offer to them and what it's worth and so forth. And you really gotta um yeah, you just gotta gotta figure out how to how to keep your instincts about you and and roll with it all, I suppose. Right, right. Well I I think the
0: biggest thing for me, especially, you know, when when I, you know, first wanted to you know, I've always wanted to be a writer and kinda put my thoughts out into the world and stuff, and that's kind of a very internal thing. But then when it comes to actually trying to make a living at it, you kinda have to be self promoting and and work against the instinct that that made you want to, you know, do this in the first place. And I'm sure there's an element of what you're doing in that as well. So, you know, it's kinda like You have to self-promote when really all you want to do is turn inward and, and explore your, you know, whatever you feel like
1: exploring or whatever. So, yeah, it seems like it seems like it's it's um it seems like a dichotomy in people. You know, there are a lot of people that are very good at promoting or at self-promoting. And then there are a lot of people who are very good at creative exploration, but there's not usually a lot of overlap, right? There's not usually a lot of people who are good at both. Um, and I, I just think you have to make time for both. You have to, you can't, you can't do both in the same breath. They just take really different kinds of energy. But, Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you see in your in your current situation that both are important, you just have to you just have to draw some lines and say, okay, Thursday morning is promotion, <laughs> <laughs> Friday morning is promotion, Sunday I make art. You know? Right. You just have to you just have to draw some lines for yourself and then figure out how to snap into those modes. I think
0: for sure. Um, now, you know, another thing that I know that you've done kind of on the DIY tip is, uh, you did, uh, tell me if I'm wrong here, but you kind of built your own house, right? On the, in Mitchell, is that right?
1: That's correct. Yeah. My, um, my partner Leah and I built a, built a small straw bale house on, on some family land down in Mitchell, Indiana. Mm -hmm. That's right.
0: How long did that take and how many people uh, were involved in that one?
1: Oh, let's see. That took, um a little more than a year and a half. Hmm. And, um, we built it with the help of our friends and, you know, by hand, Mm -hmm. um, it was a lot of, uh, a lot of borrowed tools and a lot of, uh, a lot of hours of figuring it out and designing and asking a lot of questions and learning about things on YouTube and reading books and all kinds of good stuff. Right, uh, right. How did it turn out
0: uh, in the end? Does, did it turn out the way you wanted it to?
1: It did, yeah. It's a, it's a small round straw bale house with earthen plaster walls and a nice standing seam metal roof and uh, a nice wood cook stove inside that keeps it warm in the wintertime and um, it's a really good place to live. Yeah. We're really cozy there. Oh, wow, That's awesome.
0: Um, well, I mean, we've been talking for more than an hour. I don't mean to keep you much longer here, but, uh, was there anything else we didn't get to that you wanted to talk about or promote? Where can people find you and all that?
1: Yeah. Um, one, one band that we didn't get to, which is a current project is called Chainsaw Mondays <laughs> and, um, I'm, I'm, uh, <laughs> there's a, uh, there's a musician around town named Tim Baker. Uh, he's the front man for Chainsaw Mondays. He was, he still plays in a group called Carpenter and Clerk, which is probably where I first heard him was, mm-hmm. was with that group. And, um, Chainsaw Mondays is a, is a rock trio with a horn section. It's uh we have guitar, bass and drums. And mm-hmm. then my buddy Aaron and I actually play horns in the band. I've been learning to play the saxophone for the last four or five years here, mm. and I play Barry Sax, the big one. <laughs> oh wow! In, uh, in in that band, and Aaron plays trumpet. And um, it's a really excellent, unique rock band around here. We're um we're going to be playing at the Chocolate Moose on Friday the thirteenth of May, um, and we're going to be playing Saturday the fourteenth of May. At um, Big Woods Brewery and Pizzeria out in Nashville, Indiana. Um, and that's going to be a really busy weekend because on Sunday the 15th, we're having the grand opening of the Jefferson Street Music Studio. Oh, wow. Um, which will simultaneously be my student recital that'll be running from 2 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And then and then also just basically a big old block party. We're, we're inviting all the neighbors out and having some grilled-out food and some beer from the BBC and some ice cream from the Chocolate Moose, and there's going to be several local bands playing, including the Jefferson Street Parade Band and Daisy Chain and Mind Parade and Peter Oren and probably one other group that Uh, is in the process of being confirmed right now. Cool. Um, So that's like an all-day block party at... 2051 West Vernal Pike in Bloomington, Indiana. Cool.
0: Well, yeah, I'll definitely share that when the uh, episode goes up here because, uh, yeah, I've, I've never been disappointed by a Ben Fowler show yet. So yeah.
1: Awesome. You can find the Parade Band on Facebook, and in the next couple of days you'll be able to find the Jefferson Street Music Studio on Facebook and um, keep an eye out for what's going on. I suppose that's probably the easiest way. All right, cool, man.
0: Well, I would recommend anyone uh, who's interested in taking music lessons uh, looking it up because, uh, yeah, you'd be learning from the best for sure. So, um, well, thanks for coming on, dude. I really appreciate it.
1: Heck yeah, it's really good to talk to you, Rob. Have a good, uh, have a good rest of the day up there. And- oh, for sure, man.
0: Uh, well, uh, say hello to everybody, and uh, yeah, hopefully I'll see you guys uh, in concert soon. So.
1: Sounds good. All right, you, man. bye. Yeah.